Hello, my name is Celia Hirsch, and I'm a volunteer with Igniting Change, an intentionally tiny but outcome-mighty organisation based in Melbourne, Australia. Igniting Change has walked alongside many individuals and organisations making a difference, usually working with very thorny issues in decidedly unsexy areas. It's unlike any charity you may have previously encountered, and its catchphrase is, see the person, not the label. What we are seeking to do with this podcast is introduce you to the people of Igniting Change and the people we work alongside. Our guest today is Major Paul Moulds, who manages the Salvation Army's Community Centre in Auburn, New South Wales, amongst many other things. Paul, welcome. Thank you. Now, Paul, I must confess that I'm a bit of a fan of yours from afar. I watched the documentary on the Oasis Centre that Ian Darling made several years ago. The work that you did there was remarkable. Can you describe for us the sorts of things that you've been doing? Well, I was at Oasis for 16 years and uh, for me that was a very huge formative part of my life. What uh, is Oasis? I guess Oasis is a, a, um, a youth centre in the heart of the city in Sydney. It particularly attracts young people who have absolutely no other options. It's sort of known in the sector as that place you go when everyone else's sort of you, won't take you. So it really deals with young people with very, very complex problems, often significant drug problems, you know, great trauma in their life. So we've, over time that I was there, we developed a whole range of specialist services that meant that we could engage with these kids and manage some difficult behaviour, some difficult attitudes sometimes, but just not give up on them, stick with them. So I was there for 16 years and I loved every minute of it and it was very formative in my life and uh, taught me so much and, uh, yeah, one of the things that happened is that... um, Ian Darling, who's a philanthropist, wanted to tell Australia a little bit more about youth homelessness. He felt it was one of those hidden issues in our community. So over the course of 12 months, he made a documentary that just told the stories of some of the young people and showed, I guess that change is possible and because it was over 12 months it wasn't just coming in for one snapshot but you saw the journey and you saw the development you saw the challenges that these young people face so it was a really unique insight and amazingly it led to um, you know a huge I think interest in that topic of youth homelessness and led to some commitments from politicians which I wish had been kept but they haven't necessarily what Broken well, promises. yes, exactly. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah, but um, and I think more than the, it helped to, for Australians to see. You know, sometimes you can see a kid on the street and not realise the journey that lies behind that young person, the story. And so it gave people an opportunity to hear that story and to see it and how it outplayed in their life. So it was great. But it also gave those who saw it an opportunity to see real kindness Mm. and empathy in action. And you and your wife, Mm. quite extraordinary, I guess, in our current times when Mm. nobody seems to care a bit for anybody else, you've taught people that there is that kindness there. Did you always have that? That's a hard question to answer. But when you were little, did you pick up birds with broken wings and help Well, I was always the person in high school that everyone came to if they had a problem. So, (laughs) um, you know, so I was always the the person you confided in and talked to. And, I mean, look, I have to say that a lot of my foundations lay in... um, a strong Christian background and I, what I took out of Christianity wasn't all the trappings of religion but 
the true teaching what I felt Jesus is that he did cause us to a certain way of life and I try in my life to emulate that and that's always been a guiding principle in my life so I I learned that as a young person I saw it in my own parents what were they like uh, well my dad died when I was nine and my mum really after that dedicated her life to her children to trying to give them the best chance possible we in many ways we struggled with, with financially after how that. Many, how many? Uh, just two two boys, both adopted, interestingly, mm-hmm. too. So I saw in them, and particularly in my mum, an amazing role model. But, you know, you go on your own journey, and uh, I, funnily enough, I started out becoming wanting to be a teacher and then changed to social work while I was at university. So that was my background. So my heart was always for that. My first job was actually as an outreach worker in King's Cross with youth. So I was a street worker walking the streets, which was an amazing journey that years later I was to run that service. What sort of years were they? Were they in the 80s? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. What was that like? Oh, it was crazy days because back then... um, Look, there were, there, were, there were young people prostituting themselves openly on the street. Pro- child protection wasn't as strong. There were horrific th- stories. There was a lit- limited resources back then. So trying to find a young person a bed was almost impossible. We were really just trying to catch people as they're falling off the cliff and come up with some sort of safety net, some sort of solution. So that, but they were incredible days of learning about, like what you said, the power of kindness. Often with limited resources, all you had was that I'd meet kids, I'd take them to coffee. Because I was a street outreach worker, mm. I would often say, we'd be sitting around a coffee shop playing in a, a pinball parlour back then, an entertainment centre. And I just saw the power of just showing these kids kindness as you say and being interested in their life being consistently a presence realizing that you may often be the only person speaking life into them they're in an environment in a world where people were using them abusing them they're often prostituting they were uh, you know working with drug dealers and all this sort of stuff so no and normal conversation no, absolutely except, for you. except and i realized in the power of one person to influence and because when they were in crisis, I was the one they would ring or they'd knock it. We had a drop-in centre. And so the idea of street outreach was just to give them a presence, uh, give them options and referral pathways. And often they didn't take it at the time. But I learnt that when the day came, when, when life was at its worst, you know, maybe they were sitting in a cell being picked up by the police. Maybe mm. they were you know, at the end of their options, they would come in, they would ring, they would make contact and then a possibility started. So I learnt lessons in that I carried through, I've carried through all my life as a social worker um, and that is that professional programs are great but relationship and being present for a person and not giving up on them even when their behaviour is sometimes pretty hard to deal with. Um, setting boundaries, absolutely, and I've learnt this in my running a youth refuge that there are boundaries, you know, that's for safety of others that have to be set. But you can set those and still give a message that we value you as a person. Mm. And many times I've had to set boundaries and say, look, at the moment for your well-being and for the well-being of others, you can't actually sleep here. But we, we could meet you down the road. Come and have a coffee. Stay connected to people. Well, what lessons did you learn about how to protect your own well-being? Oh, look, I think sometimes I haven't done that well. Um, not, not so much from personally. I, I think I'm a pretty resilient person. As I said, I've got a very strong foundation, faith foundation that 
helps me through any sort of situation. But I think with my family in particular, you know, I, I, I think sometimes I wasn't as present as I could be. So, yeah, boundaries are important in this work. And I guess I, today I would do things slightly differently, but that's it, okay. Did your kids actually tell you that, that you were not yeah, around enough? I think um, my wife told me primarily. <laughs> I think she bore a lot of the... Um, child rearing work where I was often involved and she was in, it's been incredibly supportive of me over the years and done her own particular mission but she was always present 100% for mm. our family and um, the kids are, are wonderful um, one of them's working in social work today too so that's interesting no surprise. The, other, <laughs> the other did work she actually worked for a long period of time with asylum seekers but now has started her own business so look I'm very thankful for them and for you know, their presence in my life, they're a great balance to a world out there that you see that is um, pretty dark sometimes. So after the Oasis, mm. where did you go? After finishing at Oasis, I actually, they appointed me for a while to head office. I had two great loves. One is working with kids directly, but the other was always developing new programs. So they asked whether I'd go for a few years and work in policy development and program development, which took me into a head office environment working with a team. Behind a desk? Behind a desk, which almost, in hindsight, was a very, very difficult period in the sense that um, I felt a little bit disconnected from the front line, which is what I love about igniting change. You know, it's that it stays connected to the people that you're seeing. So, yeah, yeah, you know, I did that job for a few years. As part of our policy work and design work, the issue of asylum seekers came up and mm. refugees. At that stage, the government was opening offshore detention. And the Salvation Army was saying, what can we do in this space? And uh, I was in charge of um, new program design at that stage for the Salvation Army. And so I went and met with the Department of Immigration. It was a fajr complaint that they were opening these places. I knew that we couldn't do anything about it. Um, so I recommended and worked on a program that meant that Salvation Army went to Manus Island in Nauru as a, a contracted supplier to the government to deliver welfare services to the people there. And how often would they go? Oh, we were there permanently on oh, site on right. island. And you went? Well, I was managing the program from Australia. It was a, a terrible program to try and manage. Uh, many of the things that we dreamt of doing when we got there, we found it far from reality. The government didn't allow us to do. We were meant to provide welfare support to the people in these places. Mm. We were originally told that they were going to be open camps where people could move around the island. When we got there, we discovered that they actually had fences and locked gates and that people were not allowed to move into the community. Um, that originally because of quarantine reasons and then and months and months went by and we discovered that things like vocational education, things like that that we wanted to do, we weren't given permission to do. And so we were given a soccer ball and said, go and play soccer, play chess with them. But when people are... That, that's Depressed. fine for a few days, mm. but not when day after day after day. So we saw uh, uh, unbelievable things, riots, people self-harming, people in absolute despair and hopelessness. And, and the biggest challenge was none of them had any semblance of how long they would be there, what was the process. And this living in that sort of state of not knowing your future is just... Very discombobulated. So we found ourselves, even though the, I think we loved the people and they and actually they appreciated who we were and what we were trying to do, but often we were seen as agents of you know, their oppression in some ways. 
and uh, it, there were riots, as we've, we know. There was self-harm. There was um, one terrible incident where um, someone actually died in one of the riots. I then eventually went to lead the team because it was just so people, our, our own workers were under great pressure. And in the end, we eventually pulled out of there. It must have been awful. It was one of the most horrific experiences. In fact, after the army decided to pull out, my wife and myself, and we both were on the island working for several months, mm. trying to lead our team, trying to inspire hope in our own team and in the people who were there. We came back um, broken, really, from mm. that experience. Disappointed. I felt personally that what I had committed us to was not what we achieved. Mm. So we actually took... Um, we were fairly broken and had to take 12 months off. I'm not surprised. And in the end... Um, the, you know, went to America, went for a sabbatical for a period of recovery. Mm. It's hard to imagine unless, I mean, I've seen the documentary that Eva Orner made, but prior to that, I didn't really have any concept mm. of how awful it was. And I think the great majority of people have got no idea yeah. still. I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for you trying to, mm. to do good mm. and yet have your hands tied. Absolutely. The sheer despair mm. must have been overwhelming. Yeah. See, what the people wanted from us, what welfare meant to them, was tell us how long we'll be here. Give us some certainty. Give us a pathway. Yep. Give us some hope. Mm. And also, while we're here, make our time productive. Help us learn new skills. Help us learn to be better people. Everything we tried to do around that space, we had to say to them, that's not our, we, only mm. the immigration department can give you that information. And at that stage, they were saying, you'll never come to Australia, you'll never, and that still is the message for some of them yeah. today. The amazing thing was, look, the, 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 the quality of the people, the resilience of the people, as we sat with them, because really that's all we could do, sit with them, mm. be a listening ear to them. And, and as we heard their stories of resilience and they were quite inspiring, many of the people that we met. Um, so the, 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 the redemption for me has, it gave me a huge love of people. Eventually the Salvation Army appointed me to a frontline service that maybe is very different to what we were doing there, but works with that target group a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and the amazing thing is many of those people that were there when I was there in those early days didn't manage to get to Australia eventually, despite being told then, you'll never come to this country. And many of them have reconnected with us and visited oh, us. Oh, you've seen uh, them? Yeah. That's amazing. And then, you know, yeah. they've said, we understand what you were trying to do. So you went to America for 12 months mm. and then you came back to... Yeah, I thought that, and I said to the army, I don't want to go back to head office work. I don't want to go back to planning. I just want to work with people. Mm. So I expected them to send me back to homelessness work, which is my whole experience, my whole expertise, my whole life. But in fact, at that stage, the Salvation Army had a big work in the Auburn area of Sydney, which is the prime settlement area for asylum seekers and refugees in Sydney. Huge numbers settle in that community. It's a very diverse, multicultural community. And they, at that stage, the manager of that unit had been there 10 years and he was moving on to some new work. And they said, will you go there? Which I was surprised about. So we did. That was five years ago and we've been there five years. And just had the most amazing experience, rich, enriching experience of working with people in that community. And what are you doing with them? Well, everything. You know, um, we run a community centre. We run food relief. We run um, 
assistance for people who are struggling with poverty and electricity vouchers. The, these are programs open to that general community, but because of the demographics of the area, a significant number of people who come to us are refugees and asylum seekers. So it's been a great opportunity to work with them. Um, to respond to specific needs. So one, a couple of examples of that. One of the issues that early on the piece we be identified in our community was that many people from cultural backgrounds that um, were um, was suicide. And it was a taboo subject. It was something that many of them were battling with trauma, depression, other issues that often led them to contemplate life. And, and, and it was something that some of their faith communities weren't able to speak to them on mm -hmm. because of the way it was yes. perceived. It was something that um, uh, they've, they themselves culturally were not able to ask for help. So we've been able to put together um, out there a coalition of different agencies um, that we sort of facilitate. We do events, we do training in the community and we've really been able, I think, to make a major contribution to seeing that conversation change. We have a, a massive Walk for Hope uh, each year in Suicide Prevention Week in October. Being able to do those sort of things has been wonderful. How big a problem is racism in, in the area? Well, in our area... The Aussies are a very small group, right. much outweighed by people from... So I don't know that racism... I think misunderstanding between cultures is mm -hmm. a big issue mm -hmm. and um, being a catalyst, being a part of interfaith groups that try to um, be part of that is a, is a really great opportunity. So I don't think the people that we're in our community are experiencing overt racism. I think there is some misunderstanding, some um, lack of dialogue between ca um, cultures and I think part of what we can contribute to is to get people talking, Bring them together. listening together. Mm. Suicide prevention issues has been one. Mm. The way that we started that is just bringing every community, every faith group together and uh, getting them to start talking about caring about the same issues. People don't want to see people attempting suicide. They want to see people supported. Paul, at what stage in your journey did you come across Igniting Change and, and how well, did that Well, very happen? early on. I, I mean, they found me, really. So I was at Oasis at the time. You know, we always had dreams at Oasis. There was always something new we could do, either education. We had music programs we wanted to start. One of the things that I found with young people particularly homeless young people, is helping them to find something that inspires them. Yeah. Often it's not traditional education. You've got to provide different options and choices. Yep. So we always had things like um, we, were, we were interested in outdoor education, um, you know, using the environment, yeah. music programs, film projects actually. All of this we always saw uh, was a great way of inspiring. But government tends not to fund that sort of inspirational stuff. <laughs> They'll give you a, a bit of money for a few beds. So it was in that context that we met Igniting Change. They contacted us and said, can we come and visit? They came a few times, met with some of the young people, so mm -hmm. not just myself or our staff. They wanted to hear from young people about what their journey was, what their aspirations were, what could make a difference in their life. So they talked yep. to young people. We provided um, forums to do that, opportunities for them to do that. And then one day I think they said to me, well... You know, and I think they, maybe they said the same to the young people. If you, what would make a difference? What, um, if you could do anything, if you had resources weren't an issue, what was possible? And so some of those dreams that we had, we shared with them. What they, sorts of things? Well, why interesting. One of the 
uh, jobs for young people and homelessness was a huge issue because of their backgrounds. Um, some of them weren't going to go back to traditional education. Some of them needed a start. Some, mm -hmm. of them, some needed someone to overlook their background, overlook the fact they'd left school early, that they some of them had criminal records. Or how do you how do you convince people to do that? I mean, well, that was so the hard. issue. That was the whole issue. Mm. So that was one of the challenges that we put out to Ignited Change. Mm. Can you help us with this? Mm. Well, they introduced us to some companies, Virgin, Toll, some other companies who we developed with them a program like a work placement program where young people did some work on themselves and then had the opportunity to go into real work environments. In fact, one of those programs was so unique, it was amazing in that um, we ran a sort of program at Oasis for kids who wanted to do a pathway to employment, but the people who came and mentored them, the people who came each week and did a whole range of activities were actually executives and staff from Virgin Companies. Mm -hmm. and that was amazing. Actually, yeah. at one point, Richard Branson came out and spoke to the kids. It was just inspirational. And out of that, so many kids found a pathway. Those things that we always dreamed of doing, Igniting Change helped us to find a benefactor or a resource mm. or a mentor who helped us to start working towards that dream. So Virgin had actually eventually built a gym for us at our centre, which was fantastic. On one occasion, they funded a trip for some of the kids to actually South Africa. They stayed at Richard Branson's School for Social wow. Entrepreneurs. Like just things so out of yeah. the box yeah. that you only dream of. Are you a big believer in the the idea that young people need a passion? To Absolutely. Yeah. Not only young people. I mean, same thing with the asylum seekers, mm. same thing with refugees, same thing with people who are coming out of poverty. Mm. They need that goal, that dream. So to achieve that, you've, you know, so often you've got to start with the basics of life. So, you know, having housing that's secure and mm. safe and stable where you don't go home overnight thinking, am I going to be safe? Am I, am I going to be kicked out of someone's couch because they can't have me? Those things have to be dealt with. There's a bit of a hierarchy but once you get those things right, then yes, you need a pathway, you need a dream, you need a goal. So mm. you've got to work on both those. You've got to work on the bread and butter issues of safety, security, a safe bed to sleep in, food in your belly every day, knowing that that's there. And then you've got to give them a dream. And that could be education for someone. It could be, um, it, it could be just a step into um, exploring their creativity and their talent. Mm. So one of the beautiful things we're actually happening at the moment is that um, they're making a follow-up documentary to... Um, to Oasis. To Oasis. So, Oasis so they found a number of the kids back then. Yep. And this year it will be released, actually, and be on television. And it's been amazing. I mean, I haven't been as involved in that, but I've been one of the characters. So yes. where yeah. are you 10 years on? Yeah. But I've had a lot of co opportunity to reconnect with a lot of people and just seeing their journeys. and That must be good. Oh, amazing. And some of the, the places that they've gone and one of the boys is now using music e even the, as a tool to help other people. So, yeah, I think um, releasing those things in people is mm. amazing. Is there a Paul Moulds replica somewhere that can go on after I, you? I don't know. <laughs> Have you got someone trained up in your particular version of... Yeah, look, Humanity. I mean, I think as I'm getting older, that's my... I, I, Not so that I'm suggesting... No, 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 I think you're right. I think one of the things that we've just decided to do in my work at Auburn is we've just convinced our parent organisation to actually give me three internships. Mm. Honestly, we get hundreds of people a week coming through our centre, either through our food market, our assistance or our housing programs and that. And um, I need more help. And I said, 
let, let's try and get people in because it's not just your skills you learn at university. It's not just your technical skills. Not at all. It's the heart you bring, the mm. compassion, the spirit you bring. How do you teach empathy? You model it. You, mm. All of that stuff is about modelling. Um, I, I think it was modelled to me. I think you got it in your heart, but I, I do think you can, your, your empathy can increase and you can learn mm. when you see the impact it has. But again, see, igniting change has been a vital for me. I mean, they've carried on. Again, the beauty of igniting change is that they've journeyed with me. So when we decided to get into our housing program at Auburn, after the Commonwealth Games, actually, mm. we had 22 asylum seekers who came out of the Commonwealth Games come to our centre. I couldn't believe it. Over the course of two days, they just kept coming and coming. And because we were known in our community as people who care and help, they'd all been coming from Brisbane to Sydney, ended up in Bankstown, Auburn, because that's where they felt comfortable. But they'd been hanging around the station, not knowing what to do, not knowing where to go, and they'd, they'd asked for help, and people had directed them to our community centre. So day after day they started coming. Mm. So I immediately rang up the other asylum seeker programs in Sydney, you know, Jesuit Services Asylum Seeker Centre, said, look, I've got all these people. Can you help it? They're, none of them have got housing. They're all sleeping in, like, there was one African man who'd taken them in. He had a single one-bedroom unit. He had 12 of them sleeping in his unit. And he wow. said, he came crying to me saying, please, you've got to help me. I'm going to be kicked out of my unit. Oh. But I can't, what do I do? So they all said to me, well, we can't take any more. There were 200 people who sought asylum after the Commonwealth Games. From all athletes. Athletes and other people from the country. Officials, yep. So, and these yeah. now people are all asking for help. So they said, no, we can't take any more. So I had these 20 people, all of whom had no accommodation. So we sp I spoke to Igniting Change. They, they contacted me. They put me in touch with someone who helped us immediately to fund one, one house. So we went to the real estate agent, leased a six-bedroom house. I had two or two people in every room. That helped us start. Mm. And see, what Igniting Change does, it was a catalyst. That gave me a model. It gave me a, an opportunity to show people that we could make a difference. And out of that, we were able to raise funding to open a number of other houses. So today I've got five houses. Mm. Um, many of those people have now got their bridging visas. They're working towards their full cases being resolved, but they've found employment, so they've been able to now become self-sufficient, move out, and so the program flows on. And that's where organisations like Igniting Change, who don't have a long process, who can put you in touch with people, who are a catalyst for seeing things happen. You know, these sort of organisations are rare, mm. and I've just loved having that connection, and it's made such a difference to us on the front line. So there's one question I ask everyone, and it is, what's the one thing that Igniting Change has taught you? I think it's taught me. It's reinforced for me because I think I always knew it. The power of people's story to bring change. And I've seen it both in homelessness, youth homelessness, and I've seen it in working with asylum seekers and refugees. Often Igniting Change will bring a group of people to those to the organisations that they support. And what they really like to see happen is for you to identify some people who, with support or in a safe environment, can share some of their journey. That is the most powerful experience. And I've seen people's attitudes change, their um, move to make a difference, to make a practical contribution. When it came to the point of the documentary being made, 
And the filmmaker, who was a philanthropist, came to us and said, you know, we would like to tell the stories of the kids. We want people to understand the power of that. I think because of my relationship with Igniting Change, because of the good that I'd seen that happen, on a much smaller scale, you know, them bringing just four or five people to our centre, interacting with the kids, listening to stories, all done respectfully and safely. I realised that on a bigger scale, that could make a difference. Because it would have been very easy to say, no, it's too difficult. You know, these kids need protection, their stories need to be uh, private and that. But in a very respectful way, we took that project on. And really, I think it did make a difference. It certainly was a very impactful thing. So Igniting Change have reinforced for me the importance of people's stories and the importance of connecting people. You know, the those who have resources with those who just also have resources, but sometimes not in that same way. So that's been very powerful. That's it for this Igniting Change podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to press subscribe to ensure you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, see the person, not the label.